All right, welcome back to the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross. Hey, everybody. I'm Kara Porba. In past episodes, we've talked about um, mostly parenting books, uh, reviewing parenting books, uh, which we're going to continue to do. Kara and I have some awesome uh, books on our reading, li- reading list. I just started one I'm so excited about, but that's for another episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk about fear-based parenting, and uh, most of the resources we'll be pointing to are blogs and podcasts uh, like, like this one uh, that we also love listening to. And for me, the topic today on fear-based parenting started while I was uh, uh, on a road trip with a, with a girlfriend. We were going to Moab to go mountain biking. And she played this, this podcast from NPR called How to Become Batman. Uh, so it's, it's five years old from Invisibilia. And so, yeah, she and I were on the way to go, to go mountain biking. And this whole thing is about, uh, about our expectations and how our expectations from studies of like lab rats to children to uh, it really focuses mostly on actually blind children and vision impaired children, uh, how our expectations of them um, change their their performance. It was a fascinating podcast, and then you know there's just so many more resources around fear based parenting. So we're going to get into a whole bunch else. But I want to share one kind of interesting little story about this about this mountain biking trip. It was on my mind the whole time we were out there, and uh, this woman who I was dating. <clears throat> Her name's Leah Teeters. Uh, she she was a much better mountain biker than I was. She she mountain biked a lot, and so it was super fun to go out with her into Moab. Um, but as we would do like these really challenging sections of mountain biking, um, me being a guy who's kind of like accident prone and not really afraid of getting injured, I was just way overconfident in my abilities, and I would try everything. Um, and fall and hurt myself frequently. But, <clears throat> but uh, you know, there were so many obstacles and stuff that I did that she didn't. Um, and I just think, yeah, it, it all kind of related back to this expectations thing. I mean, if people were watching, people might have thought I was a better mountain biker than her because there were so many things I was going up and down that she was walking her bike down. Um, and I think it just, yeah, had so much to do with people's expectations of me, my expectations of myself, uh, society's expectation of women and girls versus society's expectation of men and boys. Um, so, uh, I've been just thinking about this podcast ever since. And I was really psyched Kara, uh, did it with me and then Kara brought forth and we both came up with a whole bunch more resources around fear-based parenting, uh, that we're going to share with you. So what did you think about the podcast? It started out with the kind of rat experiment showing that rats do better based on our expectations of them because of these subtle ways that we handle them differently and and talk to them differently and increase or decrease their anxiety um, or contribute to their anxiety or not. And then it goes into this Daniel Kish. Is that what we just said his name was? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So a blind uh, kid whose parents really let him you know, figure things out himself. And, uh, and he did this echolocation thing where he would walking through the woods, riding his bike, even, um, make a clicking sound with his mouth. And, uh, and a lot of you guys might've seen other people too, that he's not the only blind person to do this. Uh, but he, he would echolocate. And, um, they said that like, depending on people's skill with that, they can, they can really see, you know, cause all our sight is too, is just like, rearranging light waves into 
mental representations of the outside world. And he's doing the exact same thing with his mouth and ears. He's, he's representing other electrical stimuli and recreating in his brain an image of the outside world. And some studies have said that your accuracy with, with echolocation for humans can be uh, anywhere from like something the size of a watermelon, if you've really like trained it to something the size of like a Volkswagen, even for like an untrained uh, person using echolocation. So uh, they're saying that blindness kind of isn't real. They can still see, they can, they're either considered really nearsighted because they can only see things they can touch with their fingers. uh, And then they do again, invent a mental picture that's just not from the visual sense but from the touch sense um to echolocation where they they can see farther but only very badly you know only you know with the definition of something the size of a volkswagen uh so it's really fascinating fascinated that that whole research about you know that the visual cortex actually is lighting up when a person's doing this echolocation stuff Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was mind blowing. And so yeah. those, those mental images are occurring, even though it's being produced in a different way. Really yeah. fascinating. And I really um, was surprised to hear that at some point in the podcast, they said a lot of children who become blind do it automatically. They They sort of naturally tend to develop this echolocation and clicking doing the clicking but that for so many squeaks or squeals or mm -hmm. yeah and so that it's just kind of something that evolves naturally and that it but that it's been um, discouraged a lot because it's you know whatever socially kind of inappropriate or weird or something and Mm -hmm. um yeah so that was pretty fascinating to hear about this kid who just really learned to get his way around um, all these dangers and obstacles and occasionally get hurt. Like, I mean, all children get hurt Mm -hmm. sometimes. And that's how different it was when, when he met another boy in school who was also blind, but who had been to a school for the blind where he was, always being led around by someone and had things brought to him. And um, that really actually reminded me of radical honesty for some reason, where it's like by, by spoon feeding people and protecting when we think that we're protecting people, sometimes we're actually hurting them. Taking, we're taking something away from them. You know, he talks about like that parents are often just, interrupting the child just a split second before they are about to hear that they're at the edge of the road and stop or whatever Uh and and robbing them of that um that edge where they're learning about their environment yeah and karen i've talked in the past about how often when we protect our children from danger it isn't even actually the danger or injury that the kids are about to sustain. It's our discomfort with seeing them feel anything or, you know, it's like, it's our own discomfort we're, we're rescuing ourselves from. And, you know, I think 
I love that example that, yeah, you said he gave, like, Daniel wasn't going to let this child walk into the street either. Neither was this child's parent. But Daniel would have waited quite a bit longer. And they're both going to be tense. They're both going to be awkward. And they're both going to be, like, watching with, you know, like, on pins and needles. But he wants to give this child, like, every chance they can to figure this out for themselves. And, yeah, I think as we are protecting our kids from danger, I would encourage myself and everybody to just think, like, is this just me unwilling to be nervous and uncomfortable and anxious or is there danger here? And, and yeah. what can I do to protect my child from danger? Go ahead. And I, I've had a little bit of experience with this. It's not, I don't think to the same degree. And, you know, my kiddo is a climber and she always has been, and she's been very physical and agile, you know, for most of her life. And, um, she loves to climb on stuff and uh there's it's like a continuum of finding the limit right like like i have a deck out on the front of my house where the back side of it is probably 20 feet above the ground so that's a limit for me like i'm not going to let her like climb on that like a balance beam 20 feet above the ground she would mm-hmm. i actually believe that she would probably be able to do that without any problem. But when she was a kid, she would constantly climb on the back of the couch on the, the, there was a firm part that's really skinny and she would just go up there and walk and maybe have a finger on the window or the wall next to her. And she's like one and a half, two years old doing this. Right. And any other adult comes over and it's like, ah, and um, maybe I was like that the first time too, but then I saw her ability that she was actually safe doing that, that she was completely in her balance and in her control. And so, I mean, she must've done that for a couple of years, just constantly climbing up to high places, balancing on stuff, doing all kinds of things that makes that make adults go like, ah. and she was fine. She was, she actually rarely hurts herself. She's very yeah. agile and like, I don't know, I can't really take credit for it. And I also want to be like, oh, like maybe I did a good job because I really let her do a lot of physical stuff where she got mm-hmm. to learn, learn like how her body moves. And mm-hmm. yeah. When I was a kid, I was just so fearless and, um, and I would get injured fairly frequently. And I remember my mom telling a story of when I was like, <laughs> like seven, six or seven. And I was in the hospital for like my third or fourth set of stitches by that point, which is a lot for like a six or seven year old. And, you know, I had gotten them ice skating and I'd gotten them from falling on the desk in preschool. And I had gotten several stitches specifically in my chin and in my elbows and in my hands. And, uh, and my mom came in all like scared and worried, like, Oh, he'd gotten hurt at school or at a friend's house. I think this one was at the Osborne's house uh, playing in their frozen lake in their backyard. And, uh, and she said, I just said like, it's, it's fine, mom. This is like my third time and it'll be totally normal in a week. And she said, she didn't feel reassured at all. She felt like, Oh, F, like this kid is not, is not taking like these ramifications of his rambunctiousness as like a, as a cue that he should kind of calm down. Um, I was like covered in blood and I was just like, it's no big deal. This has happened wow. three times and, and in a week I'll be back to normal and I'll be able to go right back out on that lake and whatever. So, um, 
yeah, so I mean, I'm definitely a proponent of of the kind of non fear based parenting, and uh, yeah. like all parents, I'd be devastated if my if my kid you know got cut or had to have stitches or something like that. But yeah. I also just love I love this story, and I encourage you guys to listen to it. The link will be down below, and there's just a whole rabbit rabbit holes full of of places we can go, and we'll talk you through some of the rabbit holes that we pursued uh, going through that. And like, like a lot of our stories, this is, this is kind of grounded and we'll keep talking about vision impaired kids, blind kids. Um, but this is obviously, this is, this is most useful. Um, we'll be talking soon with Laura Turley about, about autism and, and like so many of the great resources there, they aren't just useful for blind kids. They aren't just useful for autistic kids. This is, uh, these are lessons that are awesome for all kids. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, well, let's, let's, let's finish talking about how to become Batman, the invisibility okay. uh, episode from 2015. Then we'll, then we'll go into some more of the, of the, uh, the rabbit holes. So there's a, one yeah, more I mean, thing I want to say about it, yeah. about the Batman podcast is they mentioned it very briefly at the beginning, but, um, I never heard about that research about the rats being, you know, performing so differently just based on the researchers expectations but I had heard about there's been I I think quite a bit of research done in on education like if a teacher gets a class that is labeled as you know the more a slower class or something like that a lower intelligence class and or they get a class that's labeled as the gifted class (laughs) those students can be randomly assigned to one of those labels and then perform very, very differently because of the teacher's ex- label in their mind and their expectations. And it's not like a telepathy thing. I like how they said in, in Invisibilia, you know, it's not like energetic or something that my expectation affects the person I'm interacting with. It's my expectations translate into these tiny behavior changes in, I mean, they could be tone of voice, eye contact, the way that you, you know, the resources that you get, I mean, every little behavior choice, right? So it's not Uh some mysterious thing at all. It's like, Uh really, uh, I observable, you know, the way that our expectations change the way we interact with people. Yeah. yeah, and a common theme for every book we're reading, every everything we're doing in this Radical Parenting podcast, everything has this common theme of like respect for your children and like treating your children like the humans that they are and the adults that they are becoming and uh, just like a high level of respect and honor for our kids. And that's what this is about too. It's just like honoring their abilities I've done a lot of work locally for Montessori schools here in Denver. We we did some for Montessori school in Evergreen, Colorado, and then one called Family Star, which is one of my favorite nonprofit organizations. We serve hundreds every year. And that one is just like, like you had said with, uh, with, um, it wasn't free range kids. It was the aware parenting or simplicity parenting or no hand in hand. hand, hand parenting. Yeah. yeah. Hand in hand. You had said like, this is maybe something I want to do with my life. Yeah. I, I had that same moment with, um, with, family star Montessori. I was just like the impact of the work these people are doing on the world is just so huge. Like if this isn't what I'm going to keep doing, if I'm not going to keep doing my thing here at open media for the rest of my life, this is, this is a pretty cool calling also. Mr. Tony. Yeah. Teacher. Yeah. So, so there I, 
I help them make a bunch of videos that are just about the care that it takes to set up your space to make sure your kid can just truly roam free. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what Kara was just saying too about Elsie Jane, it also reminds me like, it takes a lot of diligent attention or a very safe space to like, let your kid do this without, without any risk to them. I don't want us to be proposing that our kids can just run out into the street and whatever they need to be. They need to be watched for, but, um, but it's, the less they know about that, the better. And, uh, and they pick up on these very subtle cues. So, so the more we can like really have that trust, the better too. And I think it's totally fine to say like, there are times when I'm willing to watch you and, and make sure that you aren't going to hurt yourself. And then, yeah, there are times where I'm not going to let you climb on that thing. Cause I just don't want to be on edge, like, uh, like, like watching to make sure you're not falling. <laughs> which uh, is one of Kara's struggles sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Janet Lansbury talks about having a yes space where, mm. you know, it's totally des designed to be safe so that, you know, kids have this experience a lot of, you know, going to grandma's house or going to a restaurant or a public place where, you know, they can't necessarily touch every single thing they want to touch and, and, do stuff with it and climb on everything they want to climb on. And they're, they're, you know, being asked to restrain their impulses a lot and they need a space to go where there is nothing they can't do. There is nothing that is not available for exploration. Yeah. So, so we want to point out a few podcasts. So this is just one episode. Invisibilia usually isn't about this. Uh, but there are a lot of podcasts that are and, and blogs that are just like 100% about this, about fear-based parenting um, and the opposite, which is what we're promoting. Uh, so we've spoken at length about Janet Lansbury. Uh, Kara's been a huge fan of her podcast and her materials for, for years. And I'm so grateful she turned me on to and her Janet. podcast is called Unruffled, and her blog is called Respectful Parenting. Good. So we'll put links to that in, in down below. Uh, and then you also mentioned, I mean, you can talk about any of these, Susan Stiffelman, Hand in Hand, Aware, Simplicity. Yeah. Uh, anything um, you want to say about any of those? Well, I want to say... I, I love Susan Stiffelman and her book is um, Parenting Without Power Struggles. She has a brand new podcast that she just started a few months ago, I think. And um, I love Kim John Payne, his Simplicity Parent. I actually didn't make it through the book. Sorry, Kim John Payne. Um, I'm going to go back and read it again now that because I love his podcast. And now that I can hear his voice, I think I can get through the book now. Um, and then, you know, and I don't know that they, I would put them so much in this. I'm not sure that they talk a lot about fear-based parenting, but they do have this, this respectful way of treating children as whole humans who have a lot, a, a, a lot of agency and ability. And then, one that I would like to mention is I, I haven't read her book yet, but I heard a talk by this woman and was loving her work. Her name is Julie Lithcott Haynes. She wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, Break Fear of the Overparenting Trap. So she was an, I want to say admissions director or something like that at Stanford. And she was working with all of these really high achieving 
kids coming into college for the first time. She worked with college freshmen. And she said, she talked about that she became really concerned about these kids who had, she felt like had been sort of shoved into success by their parents. And she, one of her images was like, these parents had like so done so much for their children that it was like these children had been like helicoptered to a top of the mountain and then dropped off and like, okay, here you go. You're at Stanford. And they like did not know what to do with themselves. I remember one of the things in her talk was uh, she read a list from the book of like 20 things that your child needs to know how to do before they go off to college and uh, stuff like they need to be able to get around on their own. They need to be able to like ride the subway and know how to get places, right? They need to know how to like be able to do laundry, stuff like Mm -hmm. this, that she was, that she was seeing that college freshmen at Stanford were not comfortable doing Um, really basic life stuff. And um, so I think that comes into play here where when we do too much and like when we're, we're constantly afraid that our child is going to fail somehow and we're sort of stepping in and saving them, you know, that we're taking something away actually by not letting them fend for themselves and go through their own learning process and all that. And this takes concentration. Like this is why to me, this is such an important topic to talk about because there are a few of these things that when I've listened to some of these books on tape or when I've read some of these books, I've thought like, this goes against my nature, you know, like the praise thing, for example, which has nothing to do with this topic, but like good parents think their job is to do this stuff for their kids. They're being so selfless. They're being, they're providing like you're supposed to, they're, they're, they're self-sacrificing and, 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 you know, paving the way for their child and, and all this stuff that we think good parents are supposed to do. And yeah, in reality, it, it really hinders, hinders your child. And we all want to give our kids all the advantages that they can. And it's counterintuitive to think that the way that we can give our children this kind of like leg up, although I'm not supposed to be, it's not a competition, but the way that we can give our children, you know, every opportunity in the world often is by not doing this stuff for them, by not paving the road for them. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think, I think that that's an awesome, awesome resource. And I was mentioning that with, with um, Montessori kids, like these are like four-year-old kids, three-year-old kids that are like making their own food and washing their dishes mm-hmm. afterwards and, yeah. you know, just doing stuff that you would never expect kids to do. Yes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, my I, daughter I does that at her school. They have these little choppers that they can, they'll chop the vegetables and mm-hmm. they, everybody, you know, washes their own dish and their cloth napkin after snack mm-hmm. and stuff like that it's not even so much about like teaching responsibility or something like that. It's yeah. like they want to mm-hmm. do stuff in the world. You know, yeah. kids want to do real stuff. They don't want the toy. They want like the real deal. Right. Yeah. So like cooking in the kitchen. And I will say, I actually don't often cook with my daughter because I'm usually too hungry to be patient mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. moment. But when we're able to do that, you know, it's a, you know, she's five now. So it's, it gets, she gets more and more skilled, obviously, but like, 
it's really slow. If you want to make muffins or whatever with your child, it takes twice as long, right? And there's spills and there's eggs on. And I imagine it's worth it in the long run that instead of doing everything for her, you know, it can be to like actually let her make mistakes and crack an egg and it goes on the floor or whatever. And um, that it's, if, if I, I have to, choose when it comes to food i have to choose my moments personally where where i have we have the time and i have the patience to do that and it's like she she really loves to do the real thing you know that she's up there next to the hot stove stirring the scrambled eggs or whatever you know and it's like she got burned the other day and it happened and Mm -hmm. um and now she doesn't touch the hot pan back, <laughs> yeah. you know? And what she has to give you in that process is such a more like valuable lesson than what you have to teach her about how to crack an egg and stuff like what she has to teach you is like in her book, it's not worth it in the long run. It's worth it. Like right now, like right. It's, <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it. Cause this experience of messing up and cooking a brownie badly and, and, and burning something or whatever that is, that, yeah, I mean, we all we are all so focused on like just getting this thing done and what's next and whatever. And like our kids, if we let them give us that gift, aren't focused on that. It's just like, yeah, this yeah. is awesome. <laughs> this yeah. is awesome. This isn't about having a muffin or me becoming a better cook. This is just about it, what it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. So um, we're going to put links to all these down below. So Julie Lithcott, Hames, um, you mentioned Susan Stiffelman. Um, Anything you want to say about hand-in-hand parenting? You know, I just got turned on to hand-in-hand in in parenting. So um, hand-in-hand-in-hand parenting. Um, (laughs) So I, yeah, I don't know what I want. So far, what I'm gathering is that... um, you know, it's very in tune with with Gestalt psychology, which is what radical honesty is based on, which is going toward the the dilemma or the intensity or whatever. So it's like it's all about, you know, wherever it's right in line with all of these modalities that we've talked about. It's like instead of it's not our job to like try and change like improve them somehow it's about coming alongside next to them and being with them in whatever's happening you know i'm not explaining this very well we'll we'll i'll get back to you well let's do a whole thing on hand in hand parenting okay we'll learn more about uh, I'll mention too that that Karen and I both did a training this past weekend uh, on something called uh, the wheel of consent and it's not really relevant to what we're talking about, but at the end there was this conversation about whether we're doing what we're doing to fill some gap in our own self-worth. And like uh, one of the cool things I've seen about Brad that I've never seen from any other therapist is he won't answer your questions. He will keep you stuck in a place of discomfort more than any anybody I've ever known, you know, like he knows the answer, (laughs) he knows the answer and he won't tell you. And, and so often when I'm in a situation as a therapist, um, 
I mean, I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm a coach, sorry. And uh, a certified radical honesty trainer. And um, when I'm helping someone in my weekly meetup or in my, in, in, in set one-on-one sessions, if they need something and I know the answer, I'm just like, I want to give it to them so bad. And it's like, it, it, it's not just out of me wanting to help them. It is out of me wanting to be seen as smart and wise and wanting to, wanting to, yeah, it, it, it is some kind of ego thing. And I see that actually in most of the trainers and therapists that I know. Um, and it's so much more valuable. I just heard a coaching call recently where, you know, where, um, where one of our, one of our uh, coach therapists was trying to get feedback on some work. And to me, like, again, the answer was so obvious, but they just didn't say it. And it's just so much more powerful when people can figure out these answers for themselves. Through direct experience instead of through the mind, because it's a different pathway. And same with parenting. I mean, like so many parents, their entire self-worth comes from this idea of being like a good parent and providing for their kid. And, and yeah, I, don't, I, I just felt like that those two, that, that, that dynamic comes to play a lot with kids and your kid asks you a question like whatever, and you want to be like this parent who knows the answer or who can do this for them or like they're struggling with their shoelaces and you can do it so quick or something. Mm-hmm. But it's just so much more valuable to just let them struggle and and let them figure that stuff out for themselves and know that whether no check in with yourself like am I doing this truly as a contribution to this person or am I doing this for any way that's about me? Yeah, and I think that that taps into our biggest fear as parents. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think our biggest fear, of course, we have concerns for our child's safety and well-being, you know, purely for their own benefit. And we also have this big fear about, am I doing it right? What if somebody looks at me funny? And, um, and how is my kid going to be seen by other people, you know, and how am I going to be seen? And all these fears about, you know, is my child going to turn out okay and, and be okay in the world? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that really touches on this thing that we'll probably close with today, although we've still got another 30 minutes or more is this article that we ran across in psychology today called the many shades of fear-based parenting is by Peter Gray, PhD. Um, and so we're going to go through some of these, these ideas of fear-based parenting versus what they call trustful parenting. We later learned that Peter had started this organization called Let Grow, which I think is also mentioned in the Invisibility podcast. Um, but, um, and and one, of, one of the co-founders um, is this woman, Lenore Skenazy, I don't know how to say her last name that uh, founded the book and blog free range kids, which we'll also make sure is linked, uh, linked in the bottom. And uh, let grow just has a bunch of resources for parents that, that want to, you know, give this, give what we're talking about, this trust-based parenting, the kind of opposite of fear-based parenting opportunities to their, their kid. Uh, And you can say he, uh, Peter Gray is one of the co-founders of that organization definitely the like philosophy of this group is just so aligned with what we're talking about. 
we might end up doing a whole article just about about that. In 2008, she had a column called Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone. Uh, so referencing back to what Kara was just talking about. So a lot of these resources talk about helicopter parenting, uh, which we all know what that is, just kind of like watching your kids so closely that they can't do anything. I think of my sister, Emily, as like one of the best parents around. Uh, but yeah, you can, her, her kids, she does a lot for her kids and her kids don't do as much, uh, especially her youngest doesn't do as much for himself, especially, and that, that helps too when he has like a, an older sister that's such a good, a good girl that he's got two people just like kind of doing everything for him. And if people will do that for you, you'll take it. Like the blind kid that Daniel was talking about in the podcast, like you'll take it. Sure. Thanks. Like, thanks for not making me wipe my own butt or walk and just be carried everywhere. You know, we'll all take that if, if people will give it to us, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve us. Um, and so they talk about not just helicopter parenting, but, but the snowplow parenting, where it's just like removing all obstacles uh, for your child. Um, kind of like the, the Stanford thing that, that Kara was just talking about. You've like plowed the way to like, like get into Stanford, but then like life has obstacles. Life has things that we need to, need to get over and get around. And, and uh, you don't teach your kids how to do that for themselves by, by doing that. And you wanted to talk a little bit about fuel injector parenting and tiger yeah. parenting. Didn't you? Yeah. And before we yeah. even do that, I would love to just read a little bit of the opening of this, this blog from Peter Gray. I think okay. it's so I'll go up there with you. Okay. So he writes, this is his blog, the many shades of fear-based parenting. Um, he says, I've long been advocating on this blog and elsewhere for what I refer to as trustful parenting. Trustful parents allow their children as much freedom as reasonably possible to make their own decisions. They trust their children's instincts, judgments, and ability to learn from mistakes. Trustful parents do not try to guide their children's development. They trust their children to guide their own development. And I will, I want to insert that this has also to do in the early years with like walking and potty learning and all of that where we actually don't have to do anything as parents. Kids learn how to walk by themselves. They learn how to use the potty by themselves. There's not that much required from us. Um, trustful parenting is the most natural and least stressful form of parenting, hallelujah, for both parent and child. Ethnologists have found this style of parenting to be universal in hunter-gatherer cultures. I really like the article that he links to here, and I want to um, talk about that too in a moment. Trustful parents are not afraid of life and they are not irrationally afraid for their children's lives. Trustful parents have faith in their children's capacities and that faith becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As I wrote nearly 10 years ago, trustful parenting sends the following messages to children. You are competent. You have eyes and a brain and can figure things out. You know your abilities and limitations. Through your self-directed play and exploration, you will learn what you need to know. Your needs are valued. Your opinions count. You are responsible for your own mistakes and can be trusted to learn from them. Social life is not the pitting of will against will, but the helping of one another so all can have what they need and most desire. We are with you, not against you. I add now these additional messages. Your life is yours not mine and life is to be enjoyed. Awesome. 
Oh. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's what we like. That that reminds me of, of of Brad and of radical honesty so much. Of like, we're here. We're alive. You know, let's not spend all of our time um, stopping ourselves and being afraid and teaching our children to stop themselves and be afraid. Yeah. And it's so hard. I mean, we are programmed for fear. And when, when, when your fear-based brain is in a battle with your, with your trust-based brain, the fear-based brain wins. You know, there are a lot of studies that just say when your amygdala and your HPA axis are like active, your decisions will be made based on that. Your, your, your lizard brain makes that decision and it's so much faster than your prefrontal cortex and your frontal lobe and your logic and your ration. It's so much faster that, that, then all your prefrontal cortex is doing is finding rationalization to explain that decision. You don't use this part of your brain to make these decisions. You only use it to provide rationalization and logic that justifies this decision that was already made. And there've been a lot of, you know, this is an advancement in in brain science just in the last like 20 years or so, but there's a lot of just understanding that, that, yeah, that you're, hypothalamus and pituitary glands and amygdala and your lizard brain um, makes these decisions faster than your prefrontal cortex can, can even get involved. And we think we're making them rationally, but what's really happening is we're applying ration to a knee jerk lizard brain decision after the fact. Um, So my point is, is that it just, it takes work. We're programmed to be fearful and, and parents are programmed to be fearful with their kids and it's natural. And a lot of natural things are, are really good for us. You know, we, they're evolved out of billions of years of, of universal wisdom. Um, but this, you know, this is one of those things that we're realizing isn't that good. And so, so we, we have this knee jerk reaction and pre-programming for fear. And those who have gone through trauma or experienced some real loss in their life have that much more strongly than others. And we have to, I mean, there's just been, we don't have to, but there's benefit for our children. If we interrupt that and say like, no, this is the part of the brain I'm going to be using. I'm going to calm down. I'm going to like, think, uh, think through what are the long-term ramifications of this for my child, not just what's happening right now, but yeah. And what can I do that'll, it'll be best for them in the long run. So hopefully that, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. I want to give a plug right there for polyvagal theory where, you know, if we can get good at, at, knowing what stage or what state our autonomic nervous system is in, you know, then we can, you know, be able to move back and forth more freely and get out of those like, um, you know, activated fear states and get back to calm, connected social states. And we might one day talk about like Deb Dana or, or, Porges or one of the people that works specifically in that. But the next book that I'm really excited about doing with Kara, which will actually be a few weeks from now, not next week, um, is this book called The Yes Brain, which also gets into polyvagal theory. And mm-hmm. uh, this whole idea of the yes brain is this part of your brain, this like the part of your brain that can have connection and trust and and morality and all of that. Whereas the the no brain and the fear brain, um, 
really is yeah just uh steers the ship more than any of us know and has has ramifications that um that it's going to be good to bring to light so future book the yes brain but for now let's go back to uh back to this podcast and, and this topic and specifically this psychology today article that Kara was just reading um from peter gray so um thanks for reading that that intro um do you want us to also say anything about fuel injector parenting or what they called uh tiger parenting yeah i like i was interested in that what he he called fuel injector parenting and he says i just made up that term you know it's the best mm-hmm. i can think of but it i i really uh related to it identified with that he talks about fuel injector parents are not so concerned with removing barriers for their children, like doing stuff for the children as they are with injecting their children with what they regard as the, the sorts of motives and attitudes that they perceive as necessary to navigate this frightening world. Um, and he talks a lot about competition and like, um, this reminds me of another Alfie Cohn book. Um, not the one that we reviewed a couple weeks ago, but the, um, the one I read before that called The Myth of the Spoiled Child. And and it's this idea that, you know, we have to sort of like inject like these certain qualities into our children so that they can be successful or, or win or be competitive or whatever. You know, things like determination and and hard work and grit and blah, blah, blah. And, and all these ambition. things. Ambition. Right. And um, I have a little story that I want to tell, actually. So and this fuel injector thing, I, I do think it comes from a place of fear because we are afraid that our kid is not already complete and whole without us injecting something in there. We think, oh, they can't do it without like this. We have to teach them how to be successful somehow, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. just the They're so lazy. premise. They're so right? lazy. Yeah. They just right. sit there like, and drink milk. Automatically going to be lazy <laughs> and irresponsible and whatever. And Alfie Cohn, I, I loved what he said about this whole, the, the whole determination thing. He's like, what, what is the value there to keep doing something that you dislike over and over and over again, just to say that you stuck with it. Like, why is, why do we even value that? Why not go off and do something else that you're more interested in and perhaps have more ability in and whatever. So um, he kind of demystifies this whole thing about, um, but it's whatever we want to teach our kids responsibility or all these, you know, values. So I had a moment with my daughter where um, we were, it was on Halloween and we were bike riding our bikes around a neighborhood um, that I don't know the neighborhood. We were with friends of ours and um, it was getting to be quite a long bike ride and we weren't back to our, you know, cars yet. And the kids were getting tired. It was getting dark we were on a busier road than I would have really liked to be on. So my, my fear brain was sort of like, we need to get out of this traffic and like back to, you know, safety and warmth and, and dinner and everything. And so I'm starting to feel a little like, uh, activated or whatever. And, and my daughter started to like, we're going up a really big hill and we were all walking our bikes up this hill. And my daughter was kind of starting to melt down. Right. She was tired. 
you know, it was cold. We were like ready to go home, but we weren't home yet. And uh, I, I noticed that I had this knee-jerk reaction. My just conditioned reflex was to say something like, you know, thank God in a moment of grace, I didn't actually say any of this. But what I, what was about to come out was like, you know, you can do it. And like, your legs are really strong and just keep working hard. And like, sometimes you just got to suck it up and like, keep going or something like that. Right. And um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying any of that. And I just knew that none of that was going to have any impact on her. I was like, yeah, I get it. Like you're cold, you're tired. We're going up this big hill. We don't know where our car is, you know? Uh, and I said some, and I was so proud of myself because I don't often do this actually, but I sort of like reached into my little toolbox was like, what else can I say? Like that where I'm not trying to teach her a lesson. Like she didn't sign up for my lecture right? She's just like trying to get up this hill. She doesn't want to hear a lecture about, you know, hard work and determination. And um, I reached into my little toolbox and I thought of that, how, how to talk so kids will listen thing that I love, which is granting wishes in fantasy. And I was like, yeah, this is a really big hill. And what we need is like a magical little hot air balloon that folds up in a tiny little box and goes right in your basket. And then when we get tired, cold and tired, it just pops out <laughs> and gives us a hot air balloon ride like up to the top of the hill. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? We need to create that. And she's kind of looked at me funny and then like sort of started to giggle. And then we just like, just like walked up the hill, right? And um, I don't know why I thought of that story, but there was something about, you know, it's, it's, we don't have to suffer so much, you know, mm -hmm. in situations like that. And mm -hmm. we don't have to teach our kids to like suffer, you know, like, mm -hmm. well, you just got to keep going and like keep putting one foot in front of the other and, um, and stick to it. And that's how you're going to succeed in life. Yeah. You know where I'm, what I mean? Of course. Yeah. yeah. No, I like, I like the story and I appreciate you for sharing it. Uh, I also think on this topic of like ambition, which is what they're talking about with, with the fuel injector or tiger parents, um, you know, like I, I don't want to always go back to Montessori, but it is one of the few things I know. Well, uh, you know, just letting the kids do their own exercises. These kids get like engrossed in them when they get to follow their own folly that's where when they're not doing things for your praise or because it's what everybody's supposed to do or because it's what a good kid does, the intrinsic motivation that comes out of following their folly is so much more powerful than any other source of like ambition. And, and for me, ambition isn't the goal and achievement isn't the goal. But if it was, the key is still not to, not to say, you can do this. Like when you stick with it, you're going to see how good it feels when we're up at the top. And, and, you know, like that's, it doesn't work. Like what works uh -huh. is, is helping your child find the stuff they love doing and just letting them do it. And I'll just share a personal story. Uh, you know, 
when I was in school, I was just, I was a really smart kid. And, and so for me, part of the like goal of school, because I knew you were supposed to get good grades and you're supposed to whatever was just to do the minimum I could do to like excel and just like, you know, be, be at or near the top of the class, still be in AP classes and honors classes, but like do nothing, you know? And even in college, that was it. And I picked a lot of my classes based on this like book that they had at CU Boulder, where you could see how easy each class was. The students give ratings to the teachers and how easy their classes. And I just picked the easy stuff. And and then I got kind of my dream job out of college, um, working for a big firm that's now Oracle. Um, doing great stuff. I got to give cars away and it was like marketing what I thought I wanted to do with my life, which is still kind of what I do, marketing, communications, PR, advertising, now exclusively for nonprofits. Um, but, uh, you know, I had this great job and, and then in 2000, tech, t- tech, there was a big tech crunch. Uh, I got laid off my job. And I was like, I got to get back on. I'm 401k. I'm about to buy a house. I, I wanted to buy a new, new car. I got to get back into it. And, and I don't know what happened that had me just take a step back and just say, like, let's figure this out. Let's make sure this is really what you want to do. I had an awesome safety net because I got severance from getting laid off because the whole division got shut down. We got great severance packages. And I was like, there's unemployment too. If I need to go on unemployment for a while, I could do that. I don't need to live in this super nice townhome that I'm in. I could, I could live somewhere else if I wanted to. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was a little scared of not, not having a house and a 401k and all that stuff. But I just, I just decided to just focus on what I wanted to do every day. I never really painted. So I tried painting for a while. I sucked at painting, did like 20 or 30 paintings. I really focused on my music, wrote some of the best songs I've I've still ever written. You know, 20 years since then, I still haven't written as good of songs as as I was writing back then. Um, I volunteered for media orgs and, and started working more with friends that were doing pro bono advertising work, what I'd been doing before for what is now Oracle. Um, but doing it for like nonprofits and, and Montessori schools and, and stuff like that. And got to a place where I was just really doing exactly what I loved doing every day with no ambition, no goals to start my own business, no focus on making money, no focus on being an executive director or whatever. And that t- turned out to be the most ambitious, like, you know, I started a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I started a television station and ran four different TV stations. I now run two different radio stations, um, have this awesome facility and, and, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20 employees reporting to me, uh, and created some great, you know, programming, helped thousands of people make their own media, all this stuff. So lots of really great stuff that, if that was my goal or if my dad was telling me like, you gotta, you gotta get there and like, you know, you could have lots of employees or whatever, any of those things, none of that interested me. What interested me was like making art and making art that like shaped the world into the kind of place I wanted it to be and being around people who were also lit up to be doing what they wanted to be doing and starting an organization that just like all we're about is self-actualization for ourselves and for everybody that we're touching um so again the point is kind of back to what you're saying it's like we don't need to learn ambition and drive we just need to learn what it feels like to do stuff that lights us up and then and then that ambition and drive just happens 
Yeah, I thanks for sharing all that, Tony. I really love that story. I mean, it it's it reminds me of you know the life planning work that's in practicing radical honesty, and and reminds me of um, there's a teacher here in Asheville named Alea who's a an awakened person who's just like you know lives in West Asheville with her family, and she she teaches satsang and stuff, you know, and she she always talks about um, you know, grace and true nature and like the unmoved mover that they're like, there is a life force energy that when we stop resisting and blocking and, and controlling that we can do without doing right. That there's all this creative energy that will unleash when we open to what is our true nature and it's like this this whole thing about ambition and 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 determination and responsibility and all that is like based on a false premise that there's something flawed about mm. us that we have to fight against or suppress or or whatever and 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 that's what we're doing with our children you know a lot of times is thinking well i have to mold them and shape them and inject them with values and all this and that means that we're coming from a place of thinking that they are flawed and that they have to somehow be trained into successful people um yeah yeah, good. So we have so many references we've talked about that are right on this on this theme and topic. So uh, this is, again, going to be a rabbit hole for you guys, but we're going to link to a few <laughs> different blogs, uh, a few different a few different books, a few different uh, podcasts that we'd love for you guys to follow. Um, and of course, feel free to let us know if there's anything that we've been missing and we'll check it out uh, as well. Anything else you want to say before we before we wrap up today's episode, Kara? Um, I would love to say, oh, let's see, we're almost out of time. I would love to say a little bit about Peter Gray's, uh, another one of his blogs that he links to from the, the first one, and it's called Play Makes Us Human, number six, Hunter Gatherer's Playful Parenting. And he, he kind of talks about this whole other paradigm, right, which is, um, I, I have not read the continuum concept, but I think it's a lot related to that book, which is also a big inspiration for radical parenting, Brad Blanton's book. And I want to read a tiny bit of this. He okay. says, to give you a sense of hunter-gatherer's parenting philosophy, here is a sample of quotations from anthropologists and others who have lived in various hunter-gatherer societies and observed them closely. Hunter-gatherers do not give orders to their children. For example, no adult announces bedtime. At night, children remain around adults until they fe feel tired and fall asleep. Paracana adults do not interfere with their children's lives. They never beat, scold, or behave aggressively with them, nor do they offer praise or keep track of their development. Um, the idea that this is my child or your child does not exist among the Yakana of South America. Deciding what another person should do, no matter what his age, is outside the Yakana vocabulary of behaviors. There's great interest in what everyone does, but no impulse to influence, let alone coerce anyone. The child's will is his motive force. Awesome. 
Awesome. It's so beautiful, right? And I, of course, I mean, we live in a different society than a hunter-gatherer society. And, um, but the, this idea that there's a different way is so beautiful. And I want to read the very last thing that he writes in the very last paragraph. Why did the approach to parenting change with the advent of agriculture? It wasn't just that new metaphors became available. Rather, the goal of parenting changed from that of fostering the child's will to that of suppressing the child's will because of the perceived needs of society. And that really struck me, right? Like, that's a pretty big deal. So when we're parenting, I want to check for myself. Is my motive to foster my child's will or to suppress my child's will? And I wish I could find this next essay that he's referring to. Yeah. to read more about that. And it's so interesting to think our whole paradigm is based on molding and fixing and 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 shaping our children. And there's a like a completely different, there's a possibility of a completely different way. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. I hadn't read that. I hadn't gone down that that link. But Brad even talks about this in, in radical parenting. He talks about like the kids will sleep when they sleep. They'll eat when they're hungry. They're whatever. And you know, there are a lot of studies that say kids work really good with structure, but then there are a lot of people that say a lot of times that structure is really for us, not for them. And they work well with it too, but it's really for us. And if, and, you know, we have to have jobs. A lot of people don't have time to just like pay close attention to their, their kids and, and be fulfilling their needs, but go ahead. Yeah. And well, what I think it is, is, um, you know, being in, um, single family households, especially, you know, in my household or your household, there's Mm -hmm. one adult and there's one child. Mm -hmm. So there is no way to be, to watch your child all the time. Right. So we can't do things. So what, so in hunter gatherer societies, you know, I think it was not about watching the children. It was about a bunch of adults being together and a bunch of children being together (laughs) and things work a lot differently when that's happening. So like at my house, there is a bedtime and yes, it is for me because, you know, it's like, I've given everything I have to give and I'm done, you know, at eight o'clock or whatever. And, um, and we have a really gentle and sweet routine and it's, it's no, it's not a big battle or anything. And, um, you know, if she, if I was with other adults and she was with other children, that might not be necessary in our little bubble you know, like a nuclear fam- family bubble, I-, I do need that. I need a couple hours by myself at the end yeah. of the day, you know? I love the part too, where he said, um, deciding what another person should do, no matter what his age is outside of the Yakana vocabulary of behaviors. Um, there's great interest in what everyone does, but no impulse to influence, let alone coerce anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, my parent why i've started this blog and why i've studied what i've studied is my life is about self-reliance it's about that last episode that we did it's about like trusting everyone to be their own guide and to follow their own decisions and and knowing how it's also the the prime directive of 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 star trek non-interference it's just like no matter how well-intentioned our manipulation of others is it often just seems to turn out worse than if you just let people be their own, you know, guide and, and follow their own direction. So 
yeah, I, I, I love that you read those excerpts from, from Peter Gray. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's a good place for us to stop. We'll be back in another week or two with another episode of a Radical Parenting Podcast. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.